scheduled Luke sermon series to bring you John chapter 1. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been going through the book of Luke for quite a while. Uh, but if I didn't interrupt that series, then today I would have to preach on the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And I don't want to do that today because next Sunday is Palm Sunday when we remember the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. So uh, it's just more convenient to wait a week. It's weird to preach on it now, and it doesn't happen until next week. Uh, but there's more to it than just honoring the calendar. We're also at a point of transition in Luke's Gospel. We've been following Jesus as he travels toward Jerusalem for several chapters now, several months. And everything has been leading up to this triumphal entry and the final week of Christ's pre-resurrection life that we will read in the section that comes place where Christ will be crucified. And a point of transition is a good point to take a step back and just think about the big picture. To do that, we are employing the help of a different gospel writer. Uh, we have four gospel writers because the story of Christ is so rich and complex and beautiful that it helps to have four different perspectives to put together. Luke is one for details, uh, but John is kind of a big picture guy. Luke's writing seems to put us, so, so to speak, it puts us um, in the action of Jesus' life, right there alongside the fishermen and the tax collectors, confronted with this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and forcing us to consider that question that we've been seeing in the past several weeks, who is Jesus? But John, as you see, takes a different approach. He starts by just telling us point blank, giving us the answer to the question, who is Jesus? He doesn't give us 
Jesus' birth narrative at all. He goes farther back, all the way to eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. So I'm taking us to John 1 to remind us all of the big picture of Jesus' life and ministry from the perspective of eternity. The goal is simply to pause this morning and take in the wonder of it all. There's a time for detailed application and instruction and that sort of thing, but today I just want to encourage you to think about who Jesus is. Uh, we will get into some of the difficult theology of who Jesus is, and the point of that is, as I said, just to take a moment to pause and wonder, to stand amazed in the presence of who he is. By way of an outline, we're going to look at three questions, who, what, and why. I might sneak another one in there somewhere, but I won't get there. So the first question is Luke's big question, who is Jesus? The second, what? What did Jesus come to do? What happened when he came? And number three, why did Jesus come to do it? What was the goal or purpose of his coming? So again, John is arguably the most straightforward of the gospel writers when it comes to who Jesus is, when it comes to the divinity of Christ. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, as we know, is Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was God. How much clearer can you get than that? Well, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, they like to claim that the original Greek should be translated something like the word was a god. They're wrong, of course, but I don't have time to get into the rules of Greek grammar to show they're wrong. And I don't really need to get into the rules of Greek grammar, though, because the text gives us even clearer evidence that it should be translated God with a capital G. And that is that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He was there in the beginning, as we saw in John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, some of John's Greek-speaking readers may have heard his word for beginning and then thought of some Greek philosophical discussions about what they call the arcade, which is the word he uses for beginning here, what's the origin or source of, of the universe as we know it. But more importantly, John's Bible-believing readers would have recognized the reference to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where John is really getting this idea of the beginning from. And that is exactly what the Word was doing in the beginning, creating the heavens and the earth. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The heavens and the earth, which means all creation was made through Him, by Him. And to the first century believer in the Hebrew Bible, that is a clear indication that the Word is God. The God of the Old Testament has no helpers, counselors, advisors, or co-workers when he creates the heavens and the earth. This is something that is unique about the Hebrew God. If you think about the, the, the pagan sort of pantheons, their gods did not create the heavens and the earth. Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, was a son of Cronus, who was, in turn was a son of, we'll just call him Uranus, and Gaia were his, his parents, so Zeus's great, or Zeus's grandparents, and Uranus means heavens, and Gaia is the personification of the earth. So Zeus came from the heavens and the earth. The same is ultimately true of many ancient uh, pantheons. Uh, the Babylonians, their gods didn't make the heavens and the earth. In some cases, maybe pagan gods are the heavens and the earth. But most of the time, the 
heavens and the earth are made their gods. It's where their gods came from. That's why the Gentiles on the boat freak out when Jonah tells them the storm has come because he's offended, quote, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The power of creation is utterly unique to the God of the Old Testament. And the Jewish interpretation, which is what influenced John, what John is talking about here, always recognized this. In Jewish monotheism, you are either the creator or you are a creature. God was not created, but always existed, and created beings made precisely zero contribution to God's work of creation. So to be a creator, to have the power and act of creation ascribed to you is to be called God. And how did God create the heavens and the earth? Back to Genesis 1.1. He created the heavens and the earth by speaking. He said, let there be light, right? By the power of his word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, Psalm 33, 6. The word of the Lord goes, goes forth from his mouth and does not return empty, but accomplishes his purpose, Isaiah 55, 11. Throughout the scriptures, the word of the Lord accomplishes God's purposes on earth, creating the earth to sustaining its, its existence, to redeeming his people, and revealing himself to them. So if the word of John 1.1 created all things, he must be God. Only some Gentile religion would allow for a God, little gene, who delegated creation to some created being. But mysteriously, the word is both God and is with God back in 1.1. D.A. Carson points out, okay, I guess... We'll do some Greek grammar here, but he points out that the word for with is unusual. Usually it means to or toward, but that there are several other places in the, in the New Testament where it clearly has to mean with, can't mean to or toward, it just doesn't make sense. Prepositions are weird and hard to translate this way, but where it means with, it's used for a person who is with another person. So the raw materials for the doctrine we call the Trinity, which we confessed in the Creed earlier, they're right here. Just a couple verses. The Word is God, but the Word is also with God, as one person is with another person. So Jesus Christ is God, but He's also able to be distinguished from God so that we can say He is with God. And if that makes perfect sense to you, it's because you don't understand it. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those three persons are eternally distinct. They are not three roles God plays, or three masks He puts on, or three forms He takes, or three hats He wears, but at the same time, there truly is only one God. There is a single divine nature, single divine mind, single divine will. There are not three gods. There is not one person. The persons are not the same, so the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but all three are God, and there is only one God. If you think you understand how all these things can be so, either you've got the Trinity wrong somehow, or you are God, and it's not the latter. <laughs> God is beyond our comprehension. We can know Him truly, but our finite minds cannot understand Him fully, cannot fully wrap our heads around the nature of our eternal Creator, nor should we expect to be able to. 
if there is a God, he must be beyond our comprehension, right? The only kind of God you can fully understand is you made up. We should expect God to be beyond us, and yet we can know him as he truly is. He reveals himself to us again, truly, though we cannot grasp him fully. So the doctrine of the Trinity, it's a framework for talking about the way God has revealed himself to us, and the way he not just revealed himself to us, but relates to us. God is our Father who sent His Son for us. God is the Son who came and redeemed us, and God is the Spirit who dwells within us. It's there, the Trinity, in our, in our devotion, in our personal relationship with God. It's not merely some abstract, difficult thing. We can't understand it, but we as Christians live it every day. So, but John's point here, getting back to it, is that Jesus is God. That's his identity. That's who Jesus is. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities. Those are spiritual beings, by the way. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There never was a time he did not exist. He was there in the beginning of all things, he himself had no beginning, but through him everything that began, began. He is the eternally begotten divine Son. And that's who we've seen in the book of Luke, men and women interacting with. Just think of it, this homeless wandering teacher, his feet covered with the dust of his travels, is the one who made that dust, and from that dust formed the human race, every man, woman, and child he encountered, whether they tested and slandered and threatened him, or whether they cried out for mercy, grace, healing, forgiveness. And with that, we come to our second point, second question, and second point that Luke makes has to do with what happened when he came and how people responded to him. So what did Jesus come to do? Well, depending on what you mean, that answer, that question has some layers, right? Jesus himself said the Father did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved, right? That's John 3. On the other hand, Jesus also said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword came to separate, to divide. And we see both that salvation and that division in John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Moving ahead to verse 8, he was not the light. Uh, I got the wrong verse written in my notes. Uh, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. There's a little bit about John the Baptist in there that is important, but um, lest our sermon go until um, 2 p.m., John the Baptist for another day. Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone coming into the world. So with these words, John begins to pivot uh, from his first point on the identity of Jesus to his second point on what happened when the Creator stepped into his creation. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Jesus was life, meaning Jesus is the Creator of all things and the source of life. Again, he's God. And the life that is in Christ is the light of men. 
Now, light, and what is the image of light here? It can mean several different things in Scripture. Light means salvation, it can mean revelation, light makes God know, or it can have a hint of judgment in John's Gospel, as well as deeds done in darkness are revealed, they're brought to light. And Jesus does accomplish all of those things. Verse 5, looking back at it, uh, D.A. Carson says it's a masterpiece of planned ambiguity when he says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It means several different things there. It's, it's a lesson on the nature of creation. Darkness is merely the absence of light. There aren't two gods who are opposite, one dark and the other light, one good and the other evil. There's only one God who is light, and in him there's no darkness at all, and creatures rebel against him. But it's not just a lesson on creation. It's a view of what happened when Christ came to earth. It's a summary of what we read when we look at the Gospels. The story of how the light came and shined in the darkness, and the darkness failed to overcome. Not for lack of trying. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Again, that cuts both ways. Shining light on someone, giving light better translation might be shedding light, shining light on someone. That could be good. You think of the, the benediction from uh, the Aaronic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. It's light meaning grace and salvation. But the wicked hate the light, Jesus will say, because the light exposes their evil. And Jesus' ministry had both effects. We've seen both in Luke's Gospel, that Jesus shines the light of mercy and grace on those who receive him, but his presence reveals the darkness that's already there in the hearts of many. We see that latter sense of light in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. So when the light of the world came, revealed the darkness, in people's hearts. Verse 10 speaks of a tragedy. The world did not recognize its own maker. They didn't know him. Verse 11 puts an even finer point on it. He came to his own people. Even they did not receive him. What does it mean he came to his own people? God had made a covenant with the people of Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people. And when the Word took on flesh, he did so as a child of Israel. They were his people both by covenant and by birth. And they rejected him. We've seen that rejection in various places in the book of Luke. More than once they've grumbled about the people he hangs out with. They've accused him of being in league with the devil. They don't like him. They don't like what he's doing. And that rejection will only escalate as we pick up with Luke's gospel in the weeks to come. He will start plotting to take his life. They will follow through on that plot. They hatch a conspiracy using false witnesses, the Roman government, even one of his own disciples, to have him arrested and falsely condemned, publicly shamed, humiliated, violently murdered. Jesus' coming revealed their sheer hatred for their own God, their own creator. This was the response of his people as a whole. But just to clarify, it's not that John is being anti-Semitic. They 
did not reject him because they were Jewish. They rejected him because they were human beings. His, his people's rejection is just one manifestation of the world's rejection of its maker. We all, by nature, share in that same rejection. The Gentile governor and the Gentile soldiers did all the dirty work. So there must be another way in which the Word gives light, the light of salvation. And we see that in our verses to come. To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So not everyone did reject him, either among his people or among the Gentiles. Some did receive him, and anyone who receives him, Jew or Gentile, was and still is, by the way, given a whole new life and the right to become a child of God simply by receiving Christ. And how do you receive Him? By believing in His name. It's as simple as that. Now, thanks to Shakespeare, we don't think much of names, maybe. Uh, you might ask, what's in a name? That which, we buy, but that, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I have a rose at home. She still gets mad if I call her an e. <laughs> I guess names are kind of important, but... Same commentator, D.A. Carson again, says that the name is more than a label. It is the character of the person, or even the person himself. It's how they would have understood this idea, this language of his name. We sometimes use name to mean a little bit more than just a label for somebody. We talk about somebody's reputation, who sully someone's good name, or, or I'm going to go make a name for myself, something like that. This is similar in John talks about believing in his name, but it goes even farther. To believe in the name of the Word made, made flesh. It's not just a mental grasp of what to call him, or, or even so much a, a, an intellectual understanding of who he is, but a willing trust in his person and his work, his character, trusting him to say, I fix my hope on who Jesus is. That's what I'm counting on before God. That's what gives me the right to call myself a child of God. Not my name, not my identity or good reputation or good deeds or good character. I have a right to be a child of God because of who Jesus is. The name of Christ, his identity, his character, his person, his work, his life, and his light. So in this way, we see that it is all God's work and none of my own. No one is a child of God by birth. As Jesus later tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. This new birth is not a physical birth, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but it's God, right? Not of blood means it's not a matter of any one ethnicity, not the will of the flesh means it's got nothing to do with physical birth or how you were born in any way. And not the will of man shows that it's not the product of merely human effort, our human effort at all. It is of God. Fallen humanity cannot reach up to God. And fallen humanity wouldn't reach up to God, even if we could. God first had to come to us, and so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that leads us to our final three questions. 
Up till now, John has been arguing from the Godhood of Christ because he is God. This is what happened. This is what he came to do. This is what, this is what his ministry accomplishes. Jesus is God. And his name, his name provides the new birth that only God can give because he's God. He comes and drives a wedge into humanity. Think about your reaction to your creator who made you out of the dust of the ground. You, you either receive your creator or you reject your creator. There is no neutral position to take when it comes to the God who made you and has rightful claim on your existence. And that's why, as we've seen in Luke, there's no response of Je no no neutral response to Jesus, because Jesus is God, and the person of Jesus, God walked among His people. We already know how that happened, but it is interesting that John doesn't mention it until we come to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. I said we moved to the third question, but I'm going to stick that sneaky fourth one in here. And that's how the Word came to the world. By becoming flesh. Jesus is truly God, but also truly man. By the way, the Apostle Paul sometimes uses this word flesh to mean sinful nature. It's a negative use. That's not what John has in mind here. They use the words in slightly different ways. This is more of a neutral term for, for human nature. It means that Jesus not merely took possession of some human body, but that the eternal word took on human nature and all that comes with it, yet without sin. Paul in Philippians says that Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself not by taking anything away from his divine nature, but by adding to it, adding to himself the form, the nature of a servant, by adding human nature. So here's another mystery, the other theological thing to chew on this morning, the dual natures of Christ. Two natures in what we call hypostatic union, that just hypostatic kind of means person, so two natures, one person. Again, this is impossible for us to understand. It's above everybody's pay grade in the room to fully grasp this. We, we wonder what it's like subjectively for Jesus, right? He had not only a human body, but a human heart and mind and will. What was it like for him to pray to the Father, with whom he shared a single divine will, but to pray, not my will, but yours be done? What's it like to have both a human will and divine will? I certainly have no idea. Once again... If anyone thinks they've got the answer, if you think you understand this, uh, you've got it wrong somewhere. <laughs> the Trinity means that there's one God, one divine nature, but God exists eternally as three persons. So one God, three persons. The dual nature of Christ means that uh, Christ singular, not dual nature of Christ's. Invent a new heresy right here, right now. But it is hard to talk about. Uh, but it means, especially if you stumbling over words, but it means that Christ, the Word, is one person who has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Those two natures remain distinct. They're not blended together into some kind of God-man, swirl hybrid, like you had a little soft-serve dispenser and you just pulled both levers and it's 50-50 or something like that and swirled up to make something new. They also can't be separated. So there were two persons and not one person.
This might seem like pointless, nerdy stuff, and I do enjoy pointless, nerdy stuff, but this is actually crucial to the question of why Jesus came. <laughs> Ultimately, the Word became flesh so that we might look on the glory of God. He came to glorify God, to display His glory. The Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So to look at Jesus is to look at God only, that only works if Jesus is one person who is both truly God and truly man. It doesn't work if we're looking at, at a human person who is also sort of indwelled by a divine person, or if there's a human body that God controlled kind of like a puppet, or a holographic illusion being projected of what isn't truly there, or again the soft serve divine and human swirled together to make a secret third thing or something. Because the Word truly became flesh, we can behold His glory full of grace and truth. When we look at Christ, we can say we are seeing, we are beholding our Creator. We are looking at a person who is our Creator. And by the way, John has in mind here the story of Moses in verse 15, when he talks about beholding His glory full of grace and truth. In the book of Exodus, Moses asked God famously, show me your glory. And God told Moses that no man can see the face of God and live. So I'll pass by, I'll give you a trailing glimpse of my back as I pass by, and I will proclaim before you my name. It's in that proclamation of the name that we get the best glimpse of just who God is. And here's what God proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast, steadfast love and faithfulness, by the way, it's an important pair of words that often go together in the Old Testament to describe God's character, God's covenant love toward His people. Steadfast love, sometimes translated loving kindness, Faithfulness might be translated truth as well. But when John says that we have seen his glory, glory of God, full of grace and truth, he's using grace and truth to translate steadfast love and faithfulness. John's point is that what Moses himself longed to see, but could only catch a glimpse of, is revealed to us in the incarnation of Christ, the glory of the only Son from the Father. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The law didn't reveal the full glory of God in many ways. It protected us from the consequences of seeing God's glory as sinful people. Since we've rejected our Maker to look on His glory, we would obliterate us. But in Jesus, we are able to see the glory of God. God's steadfast love and faithfulness are there for all to see. No one has ever seen God, but to look at Christ is to see the glory of God. Makes Him known. And this is no less true, by the way, for those of us who have not seen Him in person, but believe in His name nonetheless. We still receive Him. Though the message of Christ in the written word, we behold Christ through eyes of faith. And that's because, well, many reasons, but 
one of my notes, is that the glory of God is not merely physically visible in Christ's physical person. The glory of God is also demonstrated by Christ's work, by what he did. The grace and truth of God, the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord are on full display in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the darkness and in the humiliation of the cross, the light of God's glory shines forth. In the cross we see God's judgment, God's justice, punishing sin. But in the cross we also see God's love, redeeming sinners. It's amazing to think about all those attributes of God we are tempted to see as contradictory, are shown to be one, demonstrated to be one, in the work of God on the cross. That's where we see his mercy and his justice, his grace and his holiness, his love and his righteousness, his kindness, his severity. We see the consequences there of our rejection of our Creator, the great terrible wrath of God. If we don't think this punishment is just, it's because we have a low view of our Creator. The justice of the cross reveals the weight of the holiness and glory of God who made the heavens and the earth. This is the consequence for sinning against His holiness, for falling short of His glory. And yet we also see the steadfast love faithfulness of God, our Redeemer. We see how God loved the world, that He gave His only Son to endure such wrath in our place. We see how much Christ loves His bride, that He willingly endured these things, laid down His life for her. If we look to anything other than the cross for our salvation, we have a low view of our Creator. The mercy of the cross reveals the weight of the grace glory of the God who is making all things new. Why would we put our trust in anything else? Why would we think anyone else, any other source of love and grace, could come close to what is offered in the cross? This is the invisible God whom Jesus has made known, not merely by teaching about him, but by demonstrating the height and depth of his character in his death and resurrection. And merely, not merely by demonstrating the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, but by giving it to us. Giving us the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. We have seen His glory full of grace and truth, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of God, grace upon grace, is received by anyone who believes in his name. So if you have believed in his name, you've received the fullness of God, the fullness of a restored relationship. Almighty God of all creation, you can know as Father who loves you as his child. And if you haven't believed, I encourage you to think about these words, ponder what we've seen about who Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God 
is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, full of loving kindness and truth. And we thank you for the way you have shown your glory to us in the person and in the work of Christ. We did not deserve to have your glory given to us in this way. We merely deserve to have your glory upheld in our condemnation. And you would have been entirely just and righteous within your rights to condemn us. You are also a God of love and mercy and of grace. Your love and mercy and grace would not have been fully demonstrated had you simply condemned us all. Your character is on full display in your Son, whom you sent to redeem us, whom you sent to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Our small minds cannot fully grasp the truths that we have looked at this morning. But we can know this, that you have given us mercy and grace in Christ. And so as we consider the wonder of the Incarnation and the wonders of the Gospel, would you grow in our hearts that childlike faith, trusting not in ourselves, but we know that we don't have the ability to save ourselves. Set us free from the lure of that self-righteousness continues within us, from the subjective sense of guilt and shame that continues to plague us, Give us the freedom that comes from trusting in the finished work of Christ alone. Set us free in this way that we might love you, love your people, serve you, give our all for the glory of God we have seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name.